0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to season two of the Book Club Podcast. We now have a Substack. Subscribe at bookclubpod.substack.com to be the first to know about new seasons and to read our post about books and podcasts we listen to in between seasons. Spoiler warning: we will be spoiling Ecotopia by Ernest Kallenbach.
1: When I have a job to do, I like to get it over with. What's wrong with a little efficiency? A little goes a long way, Will, Lorna said. Our point of view is that if something's worth doing, it ought to be done in a way that's enjoyable. Otherwise, it can't really be worth doing. Then how does anything get done, I asked exasperatedly. You don't mean to tell me washing dishes is exactly fun. It is the way we do it, said Bert. Almost anything can be if you keep your eye on the process and not on the goal.
0: Today, we're discussing Ecotopia by Ernest Kallenbach. I'm Caroline, and I absolutely adore solar punk and environmental utopias like Ecotopia, which was, you know, kind of the first in its genre, because it pushes my imagination in such a free and hopeful direction. And so this book and the others that we'll cover in the series are really about hope for me.
1: I'm Carly, and uh, I had never heard of this book, although... After reading it, I realized it kind of has directed my whole career, you know, in political activism, and then you know, breaking away from political activism. Um, so I, I, I've been asking people who I who I work with if they've heard of it, and no one has, even though like ideals that are the foundation for my my daily job are aligned with this book, and so it was kind of um, a surreal experience for me.
0: We will definitely be coming back to that. So the book is set in 1999, which is 25 years in the future from 1974 when it was written and consists of diary entries and reports from a journalist named Will Weston, who was the first American mainstream media reporter to visit Ecotopia, a small country consisting of what were formerly the states of Oregon, Washington and part of California that broke away from the United States in 1980. Those states seceded from the rest of the United States 20 years ago because they wanted to rid their society of pollution and the ecologically damaging effects of American culture. They revolutionized their whole culture and society so that it is a stable state economy, by which they mean there is no waste and no pollution. All resources are used entirely, or they aren't created or used at all. Any manufactured item must be easily repairable by ordinary citizens.
1: Uh, as part of that general anti-waste ethos. Additionally, the government has been heavily decentralized, and many of these changes are voluntary and not mandated by law. The society is extremely secure. There is care for the elderly, the ill, and a state-provided income, which provides an austere but livable floor on income. Since the secession, contact between Ecotopia and the rest of America has been almost non-existent. The narrator is the first journalist in 20 years to travel from America to ecotopia because the governments are considering relaxing their strict no-contact policies.
0: The narrator, Will, details his findings about ecotopian societies in both a private diary and a series of articles that are intended to be published at home in his paper in New York City. This book is very detailed. <laughs> he talks about everything from how you know cups are made to eyeglasses to medicine in the society. And that's part of what I love about it. It has so many details, but here are just a few of them, which include that if someone in ecotopia wants to build something requiring a large amount of wood, such as a house, that person is required to spend several months volunteering with the tree nurseries so that they can appreciate the source of the wood and the gravity of using that much wood. They call it forest service, I think. Um, There are also no commercial dyes. All textiles are sold in their natural states. So towels, sheets, clothing, those come in whatever color the natural fibers are. And if you want something dyed, you have to dye it yourself using naturally available dyes. There are additionally a whole lot of social changes caused by the lack of competitiveness and the overall security. For example, he notices that children don't call each other stupid. They They don't bully each other over intelligence because... Intelligence just doesn't matter as much in this society in terms of your your rank and your prospects of security. Also, in other types of relationships, like both family relationships and romantic relationships, there's no sense of scarcity or financial dependence driving the relationship. So those are all removed. People like each other and spend time together or they don't. But because no one's financial well-being is dependent on anyone else, there's There's a genuineness to the social relationships.
1: Echotopians host regular war games in which almost all men participate. These games are not really games at all, as some 50 or so men die a year in the games. They consist more or less of a pitched battle between two sides with spears. William is told that the war games are necessary as an outlet for man's natural aggression and that the 50 or so deaths per year are far less than deaths that would occur if the men didn't have that outlet. For example, in road rage incidents and barroom balls.
0: So the narrator progresses through these revelations, apparently spending some weeks or months in ecotopia. He arrives cynical, but increasingly falls in love with ecotopia and with an ecotopian named Marissa. When the time comes for him to leave, after his journalistic goals are met, he agonizes over what to do, but does not consciously consider staying. Then three ecotopians kidnap him and take him to a resort in the countryside. They don't harm him. They let him contact anyone in ecotopia that he wants, but they do forcibly remove him to the resort and they won't let him leave. And thanks to this intervention, he has the realization that he wants to stay in ecotopia and chooses to do so. The book ends with Will sending his private diary and his articles back to his newspaper to be published altogether or not at all. So I think For me, the question that stood out most with this book is how would relationships be changed in a society where people feel absolutely secure as far as their basic needs go?
1: Yeah, this is really interesting. And I think it's most stark in in that final climax of the book where his time in Ecotopia is coming to an end. He's planning to go back home to New York to his girlfriend and his ex-wife and kids and his job in New York City. And he gets kidnapped. And taken to a spa. Let's talk
0: about that. It is a kidnapping, right? They don't use violence. They don't hit him or grab him in any way, but he makes it clear he doesn't want to go with them and he does try to escape and they just find him and gently grab him and bring him back.
1: Right? But that is still violent, right? Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely against his will. And I think he's convinced to go along with them when his friend Bert is like, has talked to one of the guys who's kidnapping him. So he's kidnapped by two men and a woman. And one of the guys is is talking to Bert. And Bert's like, Look, we know where you're going. We think it will be good for you. You should probably just go. But they they don't tell him exactly what's happening. And so he finds out later what's really happening is that his friends have a scene in him that he's having a, a bad reaction to having to go back to New York. He's like angry mm-hmm. and separating himself and feeling frustrated. And they see that in him. and. They find their own friends to take him to the spa where he can sit and think and consider and come to his own conclusion that he doesn't want to go back home. He wants to stay in Ecotopia. And then when he does come to that conclusion, they all celebrate and have a party. <laughs> Which I was like, that would be like, it's really an attractive idea, right? That some like you decide to stay and people are like, yeah, and they throw a big party for you. Is the being kidnapped to give you
0: time to think about a life decision? Is that also attractive?
1: No, although being taken to a spa is is pretty good as far as kidnappings go, and right. they are very cool with him. But it occurs to me, like you know, I like the idea of having a family unit or a social group that's that's large enough, but that I could trust completely with my well being. Right? Like the the crux of the thing is, he is struggling with something he is not aware of. He is not even aware of his own mixed feelings, and he needs the time and space to reflect and. It sounds, I mean, it is utopian, the idea of having people around you who love you, want, sincerely want the best for you, and are t- attuned to your mental and emotional well-being, but a whole lot has to happen to create that that situation, right? Like, there's no one, I mean, I have a lot of friends and family I love and trust very much, but I don't know that uh, I trust them to be so well attuned to my mental and emotional well-being to la- allow them to kidnap me or have other people kidnap me for something that they think I need to work out.
0: I mean, you would need a strong community. Like you said, you would need them to really all know each other to be able to plan this and talk about it. Uh, But you would also need a very different form of society, right? One where your absence for some period of time, days or a week or two, would not just torpedo your life, which is... I don't know about you, but that's how my life feels with both work and other obligations and stuff. Like even if I wanted to choose it, I don't have time to go off and just dedicate myself to making a hard, the right decision on a hard decision. Right. Um, Did it bother you that it was
1: against his will? It did, but it's one of those things where I think context is important, right? Like I can conceive of, of a, Society in which your group and they, and I think Kallenbach makes the case for this pretty thoroughly in the book that your your belonging to a family group is different than what we have in our society, where we are, I mean, United States, we're very individualistic. Um, And so, in that context, I didn't, I don't know if it's the same moral question, right?
0: I agree. It seems like a very different question. I was surprised by it because up until this point in the book, it had mostly been a pretty neutral description of ecotopian society. I mean, we get the beginnings of his falling in love with Marissa and things like that, but it was not a very personal story. It was mostly a description of this society. And then there's this curveball that he has a decision to make. He can't make it. Uh, It would be irrevocable if he went back to the United States because the borders are completely closed. There's no communication. uh, So it's, you know, it's a big decision that he's about to make completely unthinking. So in that context, yeah, I think it makes sense. It's interesting. Last night I was having a conversation with my husband about how some couples have vetoes, you know, for lack of a better better word. Like if the other one's really making a bad decision, big or small, they can say, well, you know, I'm going to use my veto or whatever. And we talked about that and I kind of wanted him to have a veto. And he was like, no, I would never use it. Like, your decisions are yours right which is very is the opposite of what we have here i liked the idea
1: of a veto because it communicates how strongly someone else feels about something which
0: sometimes is the more important issue
1: right like you can't always articulate why you don't want to do something or do want to do something and and i think you know it took me well into my 30s to trust that my my gut in that way and so i cling to that very strongly like if you if someone won't let me trust my gut and it, it demands a rationalization, it makes me want to just completely get out of the relationship. Like, yeah, because I, it took me so long to trust my gut. And now that I do, I'm, I'm so grateful for it. If I am with someone who won't let me do that, it mm-hmm. feels very treacherous and disrespectful.
0: Well, here, the issue was that he didn't know what his gut was telling him, right? He was, Unhappy, was manifesting in various ways that he couldn't consciously say to himself or to anyone else, hey, I'm agonizing over whether or not to leave because that was such a, I guess, such a scary new idea, right? So, what they did for him was give him space to do that, but they also showed him how much they cared, right? Like, yes, they kidnapped him and took him to a spa in the country, which is not terrible, but they stayed with him day and night for days or a couple of weeks. It was unclear how long. Because they were so dedicated to him making a conscious decision. You know, it wasn't even clear that they were pressuring him which decision to make. They just wanted him to make a decision and not just get carried along and go back to the United States, because that's what he had planned on doing originally.
1: Like, I think the first night that he was with his kidnappers, he was explaining, like, why he needs to go back. And one of them says, Yes, we know the reasons. We've heard you explain the reasons. We wanna know how you feel about it. And so they explicitly tell him, what are your feelings? And I, you know, I've been through that process myself of like not being able to articulate feelings. And so it, it felt very real to me of like, no, no, you're arguing, but you're not, you're not tech testing your own feelings. You're not checking in with yourself on that emotional level. They saw that he was incapable of doing something for himself. And so they, they took control of him and that's, that's risky. That's really risky. Uh, if you wanted to apply that kind of morality on a societal level, because people will take advantage of that trust.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Another factor about it that it also showed him how much they cared about him. Wasn't one of the kidnappers related to Marissa, his girlfriend?
1: I think think
0: Marissa's brother arranged it. Okay. And the brother and Will had kind of had some conflict, didn't seem to get along, the crux of which was that the brother was afraid Marissa was going to get hurt. Marissa cared. And so the brother, who did not like Will, right, (laughs) doesn't like this guy, still arranged this opportunity. (laughs) Uh, Odd to call kidnapping an opportunity, but it was here, right?
1: Yes. And when that conflict with the brother happened, Marissa explains it to Will. Will doesn't quite understand what's happening, but what he writes down is that Marissa says... He is concerned for me, but he doesn't understand that I like to take risks and I need to be able to take risks. So in that way, that's, that's kind of a problem too. Like she knew what she was getting into when she got involved with Will. She knew that he was most likely going to leave and go back to New York. And if she attached herself to him, she would experience heartbreak. And so I think this goes back to the opening quote, like experience, pursuing activity only to experience pleasure. I don't think it's essentially healthy. And she knew that suffering could come with her her relationship, and she chose to do it anyway, because she said she likes to take risks. I think I feel worse about that than I do about Will being kidnapped because <laughs> Marissa knows herself. She went in fully conscious uh, uh, of what was going on. Will was not fully conscious of what was happening internally. But Marissa was, and still her brother interfered and and manipulated a situation. yeah, Maybe, is
0: manipulate too strong a word? I think it's a little too strong for the ultimate, for the way Will was treated and the ultimate outcome. You know, as we've agreed, it it ended up all being motivated by good things and for the good. It is an oddly patriarchal uh, motivation and series of actions coming from Marissa's brother for the society
1: that allegedly has moved past that. Right. Right. And she says that about her brother. She's like, oh, it's a, it's a, he has these Reactions that I think are are carryover from back when men controlled women. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. So all is not
0: well in Ecotopia, which makes sense. It's only been twenty years, but I also want to be clear. This was the only thing that I saw that gave me real pause, or this is the only thing that, to me, suggested not everyone in Ecotopia had been fully, deeply, and personally revolutionized, like from the bottom up. Right? There's still. Things either in human nature or just historical leftovers that people are dealing with working and working.
1: Yes. Well, I also think Marissa might be an extreme example of an ecotopian because Will is explaining how um, houses that aren't built of wood are essentially 3d printed out of their plant-based plastics. And Marissa hates these 3d printed homes. She's like, there's no soul. I, I don't know if that's what she says, but that's the, that's how I'm remembering. She's like slapping it. She's like, there's no texture to it. And she hates it, but it's a really cool innovation on how to build housing and how to build modular housing, you know, that you can shape and change, um, according to your family's needs. Uh, And it's made of this recyclable plastic, really cool innovation. And Marissa is, she hates it. She, she, her job is to harvest wood and grow lumber. And, and so she doesn't want to live in a plastic tube.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's a difference of opinion, right?
1: It is, but I think it's interesting that there's a range of beliefs and lifestyles within Ecotopia, which makes the story more convincing for me.
0: That's true. And she, you're right. She is even within Ecotopia with all, you know, that's presented very respectfully, um, you know, but like you say, in contrast to people who are clearly fine with their version of plastics, she wants nothing to do with them.
1: Um, So I think, you know, we've talked a bit about family and romantic relationship, but I think you see the difference in relationships on the sort of what would be transactional. Like when he first enters Echotopia and is talking to the customs agent, hassles him a bit and is like, look me in the eyes, talk to me. I'm a person. I'm not a machine. And he's like, what, What what the hell is going on? Which I think was really interesting. And I think you see that throughout, like there's a point where, where he has to write an article about the war games and Bert says to him, yeah, let me read it and let me talk to you about it and explain it. And then he doesn't have time to do that when he sends this article to be published. And Burt gets very angry with him. Mm-hmm. And I think it's this expectation of very intense one-on-one connection for every single interaction you have with a person. And I think that, that that feels very demanding, could get very tiring quickly.
0: I mean, I agree in general, but I think the examples here cover a little more ground than that. So like with the customs agent, for example, I think it's implied or stated that Will is just kind of in a hurry. He's treating this guy like a functionary, you know, kind of like a machine. And that is rude in ecotopian society, right? You do interactions are not optimized for speed and minimum involvement like they are in the United States today and back then, right? And when this book was Mm -hmm. written. And so that seems to be more like a... um, like a cultural artifact. Like that's, that's what's considered rude in that society. I, it didn't feel like the border patrol or the, whoever it was, the border agent was asking for something real emotional, unless you consider, Hey, take your time, make eye contact. Let's have some chit chat, to be an emotional demand. But I don't think it necessarily is.
1: I think it could, depending on your state of mind, your mood, you know, like If you have a chronic pain issue and you're at the pharmacy trying to get your drugs, like, do you, is it, is it fair to demand that you make chit chat with the pharmacist? Like, you're in pain. You need your pain really, you know what I mean? Like, every little situation or if you're just stressed out or if, like, I think those very minute interactions have can change a lot depending on what other stresses you're dealing with in your life and to be demanding that no every single time you interact with another person you have to be sociable in a way like that feels like asking too much
0: so i certainly have plenty of days and moods where that is asking too much right but i always wonder if that's because i just don't have the skills If I had a lifetime of the sort of high sociability that everyone in this society has, surely it would be a lot easier to do that, right? And so to what extent is it just a reflection of, you know, American society making those things higher cost by making them rare? And then the other part of it is they have a much less stressful life, right? They're not having to optimize every second of their day so that they can, oh, I don't know, for example, bill the right number of hours per day uh, (laughs) and also fit in you know, all their networking and get their house cleaned and blah, blah, blah. Right. So if you don't have that background level of stress and hurry, then yeah, it would probably be easy and maybe even pleasant.
1: Yeah. I think that's a really good point. Like it does, the baseline is they, one of the first legal reforms was to have a 20 hour work week. So yes, I think it it seems right to me that that would, that would change your base level of stress if you only had to work 20 hours and there's, there's a lot more autonomy and leeway at work beyond just having only 20 hours to, to work. So I still want to go back to the first question, which is in any society with the same people
0: like me, and it sounds like you who find it sometimes stressful to deal with others, would that be true in other societies? If we were brought up differently? Certainly, we agree the background level of stress would change it. Or is that like a weird artifact of the society we live in? How natural is that?
1: Well, I will say I don't think that you would see such widespread cultural change in just 20 years. I mean, I feel like I feel like I inherited some things from my family. I don't know a lot about like generational trauma, but I feel it's somewhat related to that. Mm-hmm. Like, my grandparents are German, and there are certain things that other Germans do. And I find evidence of this online. Like, the most recent one was I saw a post, someone was like, Oh, I see a picture of neatly folded grocery bags within other grocery bags. This person must be German. And I was like, I do that. And I don't know if that's just a coincidence, but it's such a weird little detail. I think that it's possible that we inherit a lot more. From our ancestors, and so I don't know that this change could happen in twenty years, and I was thinking that and thinking that this is a fair criticism of the book until he reveals kind of later that there are people who who do prefer solitary lifestyle and they disappear mm-hmm. and hike and camp for long periods of time. And I was like, "Oh, th- those are my people. <laughs> I had that same thought. I was like, "Ah, there they are <laughs>
0: <laughs> right.
1: Uh-huh. It's kind of nice, like, that there is space for the for loner types. Again, that tells me that Marissa maybe is more, she's like the extreme ecotopian because she is so um, embedded with her family. She's like, yeah, so, and there are still people who aren't quite that uh, intense about it.
0: I do think a question that we're going to have in all these books, which are really about cultural change, is how quickly could this happen?
1: Those interpersonal things, I feel, would take longer than... Than some of the economic changes. Yeah, maybe,
0: maybe not. I really don't know. I think the economic changes and that security could resolve so many emotional issues. Frankly, in various people, myself included, that they would then be able to do these other, you know, that it would change people interpersonally. But I
1: don't know. I don't know. I mean, we hang on to our emotional patterns, right? Like that's
0: well, we hang on to our emotional patterns in circumstances which bring them out, which if the Hmm. society is changing, you just don't have the same, you know, those patterns can't come to life in the same way, right? I mean, with the example you gave about grocery bags, you know, what if there are no more grocery
1: bags, right? Then that doesn't come up and that fades into the past. (laughs) No, I kind of see what you're saying, but I think our emotional patterns come out, especially if there was a lot of pain. Like, it's that whole concept that you're that if you're in constantly in dysfunctional relationships it's because you're repeating patterns trying to resolve what happened in the past and so you can react to a current partner in a way that is not quite meeting reality because you are trying to resolve some emotional conflict that happened in your past with your new partner and unless you have conscientious effort to work through those i don't think they just go away because even though the current moment is is a different situation, you still react with that emotional baggage. And yeah, again, I think it's these folks grew up in the United States. They were children in the United States, in the United States system. And so I don't think it would all just disappear.
0: I guess I incline more to thinking that healing for maybe most of the people most of the time really just has to do with time, like letting time pass and Feeling happy and secure in other ways in your life, and then that gives you enough time to heal. But I mean, I hear what you're saying. There's also plenty of evidence of people repeating patterns, uh, even when, according to what I just said, they shouldn't be. Right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you're but if if you're in a culture where people are like looking at you and be like, "Wait, what's going on with you right now?" <laughs> like, I mean, it's kind of interesting the way that the story is is framed because our narrator will keeps trying to hit on women and and he gets sexually frustrated and he keeps failing for a long time. And at one point a woman says to him, if you just want to have sex, just say so. And then gets annoyed that he, for some reason he's not, he's not genuine in the same way and he can't quite see it. And I, I don't know what it, what's really going on because again, it's told from his perspective. I think that's really clever writing, but it's it's also fascinating that he's, he's missing something that's very subtle in the way he wants to interact with women that he wants to sleep with. And then once he overcomes that, then it seems like every woman is throwing herself at him in the story.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And you're right. We don't get a full description, but it's like, he's trying to play some game that they aren't. (laughs) Right. I mean, they say, do you want to sleep together or not? Like be clear. And he doesn't want to be that level of honest and transparent, at least for a while.
1: Do we want to talk more about that? Like because there's a real relationship with Marissa and then there's just, he's having, he has sex with a lot of different women where it's not a relationship. And there's a very clear separation between sex and relationship in this story that was honestly confusing for me. Really? Why? Well, I wanted more of an exploration of how that is possible. So in Ecotopia, women have the decision-making power, like to, they have access to birth control and they have final say in parenting, and they it's it seems like a form of polyamory is is very common. But if a woman has a child, she chooses the father and she's the final parent
0: well she's she has exclusive control over the kid for those first two years of the kid's life, and then I thought parenthood was more shared, okay, which to me seems like an important distinction because it's not saying anything like women are better parents or like it's in their nature or something. It's like, okay, there's a two year period where maybe, uh, you know, mother and child are biologically connected. So the mom should have that power.
1: I thought it was a a reaction to maybe no one else knows who the father is, or maybe even the mother herself doesn't know who the father is if she's sleeping with multiple men. And so she's the one who definitely is the parent and has the say. (laughs) Yes, that's true.
0: Uh, And he makes a big point. And again, this book was written in the early seventies about, these women don't rely on any men for financial support. They're not stuck you know, through marriage or some other means in a relationship that is no longer good. You know, if it's not good, they just get up and leave because they're financially secure. Uh, and so they end up having a lot of power because, you know, like if a man wants a child, <laughs>
1: he needs to be nice to the woman or she'll just leave. Is that similar to the way social changes have happened in, in real life? Because- women do have more control over when they get pregnant and have more financial independence. Um, But we still see a lot of the same. It doesn't change the fact that a lot of people want monogamy, you know, like it doesn't mean, and we're finding that too. I feel like there's a vision of sexual liberation here that has been disproven in the year since the book was published.
0: I don't know if I would go that far that it's been disproven. I mean, I think, Many male-female romantic relationships are much more equal than they once would have been. I think his description of things does not account for jealousy. And in particular, I think many men feel a horror at the idea of parenting a child who is who they are not 100% sure is biologically theirs. Right. That is, you know, you could argue whether that's cultural or natural. I think it's cultural. I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like, <laughs> If you raise a kid from the time it's an infant till it's adult it's yours, right? You are the parent, whatever the yeah. biology is. Uh, and he, he doesn't mention that. Like, he doesn't mention that jealousy, that potential anger, that possessiveness, which, I don't know, historically has been quite prominent, right?
1: Well, he he has that jealousy. Like, at his first War Games, he sees Marissa go, She's she's very, like, worked up and energized, and she goes and finds one of the winning warriors and goes off with him in the woods. And he's very jealous. And then also he, when he is injured, when he plays in the war games later, Marissa comes to visit him in the hospital and like evaluates his nurse because apparently Mm -hmm. every time you go to the hospital, your nurse becomes sexually available to you as part of the healing process and she she does show some signs of jealousy about the nurse, and so there is jealousy, but it doesn't stop anyone from having sex, even if they're in a relationship with someone. Like it's just like no and one even talks about minor. it. Too.
0: It seems like the jealousy seems pretty minor,
1: right? It's like kind of an
0: uncomfortable feeling, and we move on.
1: But the jealousy is there, which I thought was really interesting. It's there, and then no, but no one comments on it, and no one talks. Well, at least Will doesn't have any explicit conversations, like in polyamory you have to talk about all of it. You have to talk about, Is do you have a primary? Mm-hmm. What level of sharing are you going to do with your primary about your other partners? You know, testing. No one's getting tested for STDs. That, <laughs> that bothered me. But yes, sex yeah. nurse. <laughs> let's, let's talk about that. Yeah, let's talk a little
0: bit about sex in general in this novel. There's a lot of it. Very, I thought, disproportionate to the rest of the book, which is so much you know, about the details of how this society would function. Uh, I think there's definitely some wish fulfillment in that aspect. Uh, you know, he just goes on and on about these women are so liberated. And he also goes out of his way to say, you know, they're not pretty like American women because they don't wear makeup and high heels, but they're, you know, they're pretty in their own way because they look you directly in the eye and tell you what they want. It's just like, okay, nobody cares. Oh, yeah,
1: no. <laughs> yeah. And when he describes Marissa when he first meets her, he's like, it's kind of like, Despite her being a competent leader, because she is in charge at the at yeah. the lumber tree. I don't I don't know what you would call it, but um, nursery, whatever it is. <laughs> He's like, despite her being a leader, she was hot, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yes.
0: Book was written in the 70s. Yeah.
1: I- I'm willing to dismiss that as like a product of the time and not get too upset about it.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's how I felt about it. It was kind of an eye roll. Maybe he felt that was necessary to make the rest of it more appealing to a wider audience. I don't know. But the sex nurse thing. So when you go to the hospital, you're assigned uh, a nurse of the uh, sex that you would be attracted to, and that individual waits on you hand and foot and is with you the entire time you're in the hospital. So if you're there four days, they're there four days, you know, they sleep there, they don't go home, it's not shift work, and they bathe you and maybe other activities to help you feel (laughs) sufficiently relaxed. Uh, and then at the end of it, when you leave the hospital, they leave too, and they get to go take a break commensurate with how long you've been in the hospital. Cause they've been there with you the whole time. So the overall emphasis on personalized care, uh, that was fine minus the sex, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was some commentary too, about not needing as many drugs because you, or like the nurse would give massages and that would relieve his pain. Right. And I'm like, I mean, sure. In in some cases, maybe a massage is enough, but I, for certain other problems, I don't think that's enough. I don't think personalized attention has, can heal everything, but it did make sense to me that the nurse, after having given, again, going back to like that personal one-on-one connection and that um, like emotional giving would then be free to go on vacation for two or three months. Like that makes a lot of sense to me that, they're accommodating the need that like, you do need to go recover from that. Like not like our current customer service jobs where you could get yelled at or <laughs> abused
0: or yeah, whatever. is like, Right. Exactly. Right. Moving past that, but still talking about how relationships are different. What did you think of these descriptions of what he calls street dramas, which is essentially where maybe a couple would be having an argument maybe two employees, one would be bad at another for not doing the job right. And everyone would not only watch, but they would like join in and intervene and say, well, what did he do to you? And Well, why didn't you ask for help? Or whatever it might be. And they'll have like, An impromptu group therapy session, but not quite that gentle. I mean, sometimes these bystanders will say, "Well, no, you did that wrong. You should apologize." (laughs) Like they'll just get right in each other's business, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm having a hard time making that connection to the like high level societal organization. Like, why would this high level organization lead to that? Well, I can think of two things.
0: It kind of goes with the general. Decentralization, emphasis on horizontal problem solving, you know, with your neighbor mm-hmm. as peers. So there's that. But then I also think that confrontation and open emotionality would be much less threatening in a society that has this level of emotional security and therefore less violence, right? Like right now, when I see people yelling on a street, I am afraid some violence is going to break out. They don't have that fear, right? because violence is more rare. And so they both let their natural curiosity take over and go and get involved. But then also they have a society where that's encouraged and people are more comfortable with the idea of your peers, the people around you will help you work through a problem.
1: Yeah, I think what's missing in current in our current society is the willingness to be wrong. Like if I if someone wants to get involved with someone else's little disagreement, it's more often seems to come from Someone want to be in charge and be in control. And so if you want to engage in those conversations, you have to accept that maybe your point will not be the final say. And how do you develop that willingness to engage and not be the so-called winner of the argument on a societal level? <laughs> I
0: mean, I think a lot of it would go back to security again. I mean, I guess we've already kind of, you know, I've already kind of differed on this, but I think a lot of those Mentally self-protective mechanisms would drop away if people were physically and uh, materially secure. I think it's also related to what he says about intelligence, right? So we mentioned this early on, but he notices that the way children play with each other is different. It's more elaborate, more group focused. They find these big projects and focus on them together for days, weeks, months at a time, but he specifically notices none of them call each other stupid. Like they have their arguments, they have their disagreement. Children are not angels, even in in Ecotopia, but they never call each other stupid. Whereas, you know, his take on it is that intelligence is not such a big deal in Ecotopia because it's not going to decide whether or not, you know, you're going to have security in your old age, right? Or you can get, whether or not you can get healthcare or whether or not you can achieve your dreams or have a meaningful job, right? It's just, you know, good for you if you're smarter than everyone else and so it's not a weapon people use against each other.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, th- I mean, I have a I have a lot of thoughts about how our hierarchical public school system creates a hierarchical society and and you know, having been adjacent to homeschooling and unschooling movements, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, which people should look that up if they're curious. Uh, yeah, I mean that that does make a lot of sense that if you from if you if you're if you don't have a status to uphold, how much of your ego and egotistical reactions to things goes away.
0: Yeah, I mean I think American society really struggles with the concept of intelligence and equating it with worth because we do. Yeah. But intelligence to some extent is not that malleable, right? There's there's some amount of natural gift. But even if they're if it was totally malleable, you'd still end up with a spectrum where some people had more than others. And they're not worth more, but they are very much treated that way. Mm -hmm. And we're okay with that because I don't know, like intelligence isn't merit at all, but we treat it that way. So I I thought that was interesting that he put his finger directly on intelligence. This kind
1: of gets to something I want to talk about regarding shame. Like if we're evaluating what makes a good society, if we look, I think one of the clues is what are people shamed for and what do people feel ashamed of? And there's a situation with uh, a chef. So Will goes to a diner to get breakfast and um, another customer complains that his eggs are overdone and he goes and complains directly to the chef. One of these public interactions and a bunch of other customers and the other uh, workers in the diner get involved and the chef ha- was overwhelmed. She had too many orders she couldn't handle and she felt ashamed that she couldn't handle the work that was in front of her. And then everyone else was like, "No, no, that's not what you need to be ashamed of. This is my interpretation." They were like, "You should have asked for help. Like there's nothing there's no reason to be ashamed of asking for help." I thought that was a really interesting situation.
0: And it was a little more pointed than that, right? Like mm-hmm. the whole diner sort of erupts into this like fact-finding mission <laughs> of why are these eggs are cold? You know, they go back, they interrogate the cook, they ask some of the other employees like Know why aren't you helping her? Why didn't you pick this up? Like it's not necessarily done with kid gloves where we're just talking about people's feelings. They identify the problem, which is she had too many orders, and then they tell her what she did wrong. And what she did wrong was that she should have asked for help. And the point here is not that they're mean about it, but also that this did not become like a therapy session where the only point was people's feelings. You know, this was like they were solving a problem. Yeah. And she was okay with it. She was like, you know what, you're right, I'll do better in the future. Um it's called cooperative criticism in Ecotopia. Yes, that's right. And so people on the street will just engage in this. How would you feel about that?
1: I think I would love it. I yeah. I love clear <laughs> and explicit <laughs> conversation. And I am not afraid to defend my actions if I feel like I need to, and I'm not afraid to admit that I was wrong if I was wrong. I love it.
0: Yeah, it sounds pretty appealing, right? Like I, I tend to be a little more comfortable with confrontation than I probably should be, frankly, in many ways. But this sounds good, right? Like, let's find the problem, let's solve it. But I'm also trying to imagine what it would be like to live with that. Would it be kind of nerve-wracking, right? You would certainly have no sense of privacy in public settings. Like, someone might jump in and get all in your business. Um, Someone might, you know, notice you're doing something wrong from across the room and, like, come over and tell you about it, right?
1: Yeah, and I think that goes back to can you trust their motives, right? Like in this culture, people, there's no question that the motives are to solve the problem and not to aggrandize oneself.
0: Right. No one is trying to make themselves feel better by making out someone else feel, which is a, unfortunately, a very common thread, I think, in societies that are hierarchical and particularly around intelligence.
1: Well, and they're also not trying to sell, sell you anything. Like they're not trying to sell you coaching classes or like, <laughs> yeah. or nutrition spread, like, Oh, you did that because you, your, your nutrition isn't great. So I'm going to sell you a nutrition class or a nutrition supplement or therapy or a religion or, you know, like they're not yeah. going to try and sell you something. <laughs> Is there any religion in here? I mean, Marissa worships trees. Right. Is there any,
0: uh, like institutional religion that you notice?
1: I think the whole thing is has a very religious tint. Like so many different people talk to Will about him not being human enough. And I think religion yeah. tells us what it means to be human, and that's part of their whole society is like we are trying to be human in this way that we have defined it, which is in line with the environment and I think this all goes into it. This this openness with each other, this care for each other.
0: It is a very spiritually a whole society and they care about spiritual well-being. I think that's true.
1: They also criticize will very harshly when he doesn't get their beliefs or doesn't or or questions their ways of doing things.
0: When, do they, when are they harsh on him for questioning?
1: I mean, I'm thinking of Bert when he's like, you had to go and write that article about the war games. Bert gets very angry with him. And I I have offered my help to you and you didn't accept my help. And this is very American of you. Or Marissa gets mad right. whenever he lapses into inattention or American business likeness and calls him detached and inhuman. He gets criticized from a lot of different people about acting inhuman or being detached. That's true.
0: With Bert, so Bert is a fellow journalist. Will has been has spent every day hanging out at what is like the journalists' clubhouse, basically. And then at some point, even starts living there because they have um, beds like a hotel. And so he knows Bert pretty well by this point. And Bert has been generous with his time and connections, introducing him to people, stuff like that. And Bert says, "Hey, you're writing this article about the war games, which are." a sensitive topic in this society. And we're very sensitive to how the outside world might think of this. So could you come, you know, come talk to me and maybe some of my other colleagues before you publish your story? We just wanna make sure you really understand it. And Will is offended by that, right? Cause he's like, well, I'm an individual. I have my own judgment as a journalist. I don't need you telling me what to do, right? That's his reaction. And so he doesn't. And then Bert comes to him and is hurt like as a friend In Because Bert feels like, hey, you know, like we've offered a lot. We've been generous. I wasn't trying to tell you what to do, but you should have respected the relationship by having a conversation, which is all we were asking, right? Is that a fair description?
1: I, I remember him being angry that Will didn't accept the help that Bert was offering and that offering cooperation is extremely valuable to Bert, but Will doesn't see that it's a very valuable gift he has been offered. And that's what, that's what I remember being the real source of Bert's anger about it. Not that it was, I didn't remember it was because he published something that was misunderstanding a sense of the topic. It was that he rejected Bert's offer for help.
0: Oh, I think that's true. Yes. I think we're in agreement. He was, it was really about the friendship. Will interpreted it it as, oh, you're trying to, uh, you know, impinge upon my journalistic objectivity and Screw you! Basically, it was more a friend saying, "Hey, I, I've done all this for you, and I asked for this, and you—you know—I keep reaching out my hand, you keep knocking it away." Basically,
1: so I feel like saying that is a bit more transactional than what what ecotopians do. Saying like, "I offered you this, and I accepted you, and therefore you should have accepted this," like that feels more transactional than than what an ecotopian would do. Okay, so why is why is Bert hurt? Then he's he said. I think that's one of the times he calls Will inhuman like having to be by himself because, because Will is also criticized. He doesn't have a relationship with his girlfriend back in New York city, but he describes like having been that nuclear family unit, like seeking that nuclear family unit. And Bert has talked to him before about how lonely that is and how it seems unnatural to Bert and the ecotopians. And it was part of this individual accomplishment, like nothing in ecotopia is done as an individual accomplishment, it's all cooperative. And so Bert was mad that Will doesn't see how inhuman he is, which is, I have problems with that a lot. Like the Egotopians have this very nuanced and thorough description of what it means to be human. And I I reject anything that's like trying to define what it is to be human. Like I think, I think it's very dangerous territory uh, when you are part of a group that's trying to tell you that your natural instincts are wrong because you're not human. You're not behaving like a human. I think that's very dangerous, but that's, that's what I remember from that interaction with Bert in the book.
0: They do use that language of inhuman versus truly human a lot. I do want to push back. You said that there are no individual, you didn't say no individual successes. You said it's all cooperative, but there are individual artists you know, who achieve things and have their works known for just themselves. So it is, it's a cooperative and very social society, but you can still be your own person.
1: Yeah. I'm not remembering that part with the artist as much. It's just that Bert was like, you had to go off on your own and write this article. Right. Yeah. So we should talk about the war
0: games. That was the other thing in addition to the sex nurse (laughs) that I just really kind of rolled my eyes. So the premise is that men, and it is specifically men, are naturally violent and therefore there must be an outlet for that violence. It has to be real violence. And so that's what the war games are. Various groups, and it's unclear, it seems to be kind of geographically based, but it, it happens all over the country. Not at the same time, at different times, but you know, at ritual times like a neighborhood will go to war with another neighborhood and they will get, you know, actual weapons, I think spears and charge against each other and try to hurt each other. And then once the first blood is spilled, they kind of pull back, you know, that's it. There's no second rush. Everyone, whatever man is injured, or men are injured. They're treated as conquering heroes. You know, flowers are thrown at them and beautiful women come up and kiss them on the cheek and stuff like that. And so they get to feel like heroes and that lets the violent urge out. And even though some ecotopians die in these events every year, that's worth it because they get that violent urge out and actually more people would die if these men weren't allowed this out.
1: I I buy it actually. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, something that has bothered me a lot, um, in thinking about, innovating and cr- trying to create new kinds of community and new kinds of society is that all of our examples from the past involve a lot of death and violence. And it makes me wonder if if that's avoidable. And I'm, I'm st- starting to lean, maybe it's not avoidable, like the act of creating something new and the act of building society requires a- that type of sacrifice. Um,
0: Wait, so are you saying that sounds different than saying that violence is natural to young men, is
1: it? No, I don't. I think it's the same. That that it's part of being human in a way. <laughs> that <to be, laughs> you need know, a violent or or I remember reading the Iliad in college, and a friend of mine, a young man, was just so taken by it. And I didn't really connect with the Iliad when we when we first read it. Um, but he was just like he had never experienced reading about war in that way, and that was very. He was very taken with that. And I was like, it felt like something very masculine that men needed some kind of relationship. And excuse me if I'm a little graphic here. It seemed to me that men needed to have a relationship with blood and bleeding that women didn't need for obvious reasons.
0: (laughs) The obvious reason being that many women already have that and they're fine. Thank you. They don't want any (laughs) more.
1: No, I think that we, we face our bleeding and our mortality in a way that's different. I'm so. not sure. Tra- I don't yeah. want to be too prescriptive. I don't want to like. Right. I'm not trying to be like
0: body normative here or whatever, but there are many women uh, and some other individuals out there who have a much more ongoing experience with blood.
1: To just <laughs> and, there, and Yeah. Your own, specifically your own blood, bleeding yeah. in your own blood and being close to that experience that, that, just bodily fluids in general and we in modern society have a very sanitized existence um and so i was wondering if that's what he was tapping into when he read the iliad like he had this i remember thinking that that's what he had an attraction to we have football all kinds of sports are explained as as a way to have war without having war and the way that people want to attach to a team and feel that visceral reaction when their team wins or loses and they feel part of that, that seems to track and they don't have other sports in ecotopia. And when the person that Will interviews who's not named explains that they specifically don't have clear teams and they don't do training. And I think that was to kind of avoid the polarization of you are attached to a certain team, you as a spectator are attached to a certain team, that it's, it's more flexible and malleable who fights on which side and when the fights happen because they wanna avoid that kind of dividing their people.
0: Right, yeah, I think in the late Roman empire, there were teams, reds and blues that became associated with different gladiator teams. And it started as that, but it went on for decades. And because they often rioted and were violent in response to the outcome, of the gladiatorial fights. Or no, the chariot races, it was the chariot races. Um, they th- Those became political factions. So yes, the ecotopians are <laughs> correct to want to make sure there's not an ongoing faction of any kind that starts and supports. I think the question here is more narrowly about violence hmm. and less about groupthink or you know what happens when you're part of a crowd. Because I think that's the specific claim. Men are violent. By nature, they need this outlet. I'm a little more skeptical of that, both from personal experience. I find myself to also be more martial in nature. I loved the Iliad. You know, I, <laughs> I find that I seek out fights in my own life for better or for worse. I'm a trial lawyer for a reason. I've done some dumb shit <laughs> just in the interest of protecting what I thought was my honor, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't find that to be a particularly gendered thing. Mm -hmm. But then also, I think it is somewhat cultural. You know, you mentioned how safe and secure uh, and sanitized modern life is. I think men love the compliment of it being assumed that they are violent or they have the potential for violence, right? Mm -hmm. So I think this is just kind of some ego stroking. You know, I guess I put myself in a catch 22 because I would never believe a man when he told me oh, you know, I have naturally violent tendencies or all men do or something. Because it just sounds like very self-gratifying. Like, oh, you think that's cool? Because in this society, it's never going to be tested, right? Like you say that to me and then we have an argument in words about it and you never have to show it in any way that matters, right? So I'm very skeptical of claims by men that men are naturally, all of them are naturally martial and violent.
1: Sure. No, I, I accept that. Like it's not all men. It's not all it's not just men i i see i see that so yes i'm i'm with you on saying that this doesn't have to be a purely male activity but i do think that the violence and i think that the challenge of having something at stake you could be injured you could be killed i mm-hmm. think that's attractive and would not be eradicated in any kind of ideal society that that there's a there's a drive in some people maybe a lot of people that they want to participate in something where you, you feel that adrenaline, right? Like it's, you're pushing your body to the physical limit and there's no, I think that there's no physical challenge more than facing off another person with your level of strategy and strength. You know what I mean? Like I've heard that described about wrestling. It's that it's the most intense exercise because you are grappling with someone so sim- similar to yourself, and can can share your weaknesses and your strengths and ex- exploit your weaknesses. So, is it is it just for men? I, yeah, I'm with you on that. But I do think that this this nature seems very seems true to me. And I think too, I always associate it with the hunting. So I remember being at a paleo conference, which it's not paleo is not just a diet. But the paleo conference made it clear to me that um, there's a lot, there was a lot more going on. And I remember hearing a woman speak about her first time hunting and the rush and the adrenaline and facing the fact that she had killed another living thing, but it was for her own nutrition and being connected with that life and death cycle. It was very powerful for her. And so I feel like it's connected to this violence thing and it's connected to why they hunt a lot in Ecotopia.
0: So, I mean, I agree people want meaning, they want to feel connected. I think certain types of violence ritualized or on behalf of what you feel like are your people can accomplish that, I just remain skeptical that that is the only way to accomplish it to the point where you have to have something like the war games, right? Sure. Um, But I think maybe it sounds like we might at the moment have to agree to disagree on that one. I also suspect this will come up again as we go through this season, because what to do
1: about violence in a utopian society is a fundamental question, right? Sure. That seems like the start of a genre theme. So you want to talk more about genre themes? Yes, absolutely.
0: So this is our first solar punk book, which is a term that as far as I know, did not exist when this book was published. Uh, instead, it refers to itself as utopian. And um, so I think of solar punk as, yes, utopian, but with an emphasis on the environment. That's the solar part. And then because of that, also an emphasis on human society would change to be more in tune with the environment, to be less consumption oriented, etc. cetera. So this is an emerging genre. And that's different from our last series. So we did Haunted House Stories last time, which... Everyone has seen or read or, you know, come across a haunted house story. So we knew about the genre before we started, really. And this, we're kind of discovering it as we go along. Here are my thoughts at the beginning. So to me, these stories are about hope and imagination and specifically how those two things feed each other. If you can imagine new societies, you can start to hope for them too, um, and because you have hope, you can also start to imagine new things. And I'm not saying these societies are how it should be. Like, I don't intend this as prescriptive. It's about imagining what would change, about personal and social transformation. Uh, I think another question that we touched on today, and we'll come back again, is how quickly do societies change? And how permanent is it? What makes a society change? Other themes that kind of go with the solar part of it, well, actually, also the punk part, are <laughs> making craftsmanship, um, egalitarian societies, creativity, renewable energy. I think we're going to see all of these come up again, and again. And I think the questions we're going to be grappling with are: what makes a good society? How is violence managed, either when that violence is internal or against external aggressor? What? Does it mean to be human? <laughs> you know, what is the essence of humanness? And as Carly points out, is that a question that's worth asking? Maybe it's not. What happens in a good society? What happens to the misfits, the poor, the sick, the people who disagree with the society? How are they treated? How? What behaviors or feelings are shamed? Because any society has shame. So let's, let's focus on that. What does that say? So those are my thoughts for how the solar punk genre will develop
1: yeah i think that's a really good framing for our season going forward so appreciate that um yeah i mean there were some things we didn't talk about in this book maybe we yeah. will include those notes in our sub stack uh, so i hope yeah. people will subscribe <laughs> and so for final thoughts i have i have so many so i'll just boil it down to i'm glad i didn't read this book when i was in high school because i had already been very taken with a lot of utopian ideas and that sort of as I went through life, learning and working in the political arena, like sort of coalesced into a lot of what's in Ecotopia. And if I had had Ecotopia to begin with, I would have been completely insufferable.
0: So. <laughs> <laughs> so that's an interesting idea. The ideas are too good. You needed to slowly build up to them. Is that kind of what you're saying?
1: Yeah, in a, in a humble way. Instead of saying, "Hey, it's all written here. Just like read the book and you'll get it." I had to like <laughs> learn. I had to learn slowly which ideas I thought were good and which weren't. And it, it has led me to a very egotopian way of thinking. <laughs> okay. So for me, this book is great for all the detail it provides about
0: day-to-day life, right? Like if you want to build a house, you got to go do forest service. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to go visit your friends, you got to bike over there. It provides so many concrete details about the day-to-day that I can fully imagine myself in this world. And then that leads me to a series of questions that I find very helpful, which is, how would I be different in a world like this, or just in any world different than the one and the lifestyle that I have now? What parts of me are really just determined by the structure that I live in? And if I had the freedom to do so, I would leave them behind. So that's a freeing thought to just imagine how I'd be different, because then eventually even in my own life, I can maybe choose to leave some habits or behaviors or way of thinking behind even before this huge cultural shift occurs.
1: That's interesting. I want to come back to that in later books too, to talk about personal change versus societal change. We should discuss that. Yep. That's definitely going to be a theme. Listeners, what did you think of Ecotopia? Have you read any books by Ernest Kallenbach? What do you think about solar punk and environmental utopias? Let us know by recording a voice memo and emailing openingquestion at gmail.com. You can also complete the feedback form on our website at bookclubpod.com. We'll read your responses and play your voice memos on our feedback episode at the end of the season. Our next book discussion will be A Psalm for the Wild built by Becky Chambers.
0: Read it with us. We'll release that episode next. You can get your copy by using the affiliate link in our show notes
1: book club podcast is produced by caroline gorman and carly jackson audio editing by alex marcus thanks for listening